Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. Scott Leland. I'm the executive director of the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government, which is hosting today's session. Uh, and it's my privilege to introduce Quinn Slobodian, today's speaker. Um, professor Slobodian is uh, an associate professor of history at Wellesley College. He is an historian of modern German and international history with a focus on North South politics social movements, and the intellectual history of neoliberalism. He's the author or editor of several books, the most recent one of which uh, is right here. Globalists, the End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. We'll be doing um, a lottery at the end of the <coughs> seminar, close to 1 o'clock, and you have a chance to win one of these books if you uh, filled out a card and dropped it in the bowl. John Ruggie, some, who some of you may know, uh, is a political scientist and a professor here at the Kennedy School who teaches classes in global governance and has done extensive work with the United Nations. And he has called this book by Professor Slobodian both brilliant and a fantastic achievement. So today we're going to learn more about neoliberalism, this philosophy of economic governance, uh, and how it relates to the world economy. So with no further ado, Professor Saludi, and welcome to the Kennedy School. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for coming, and John Ruggie in absentia, who had to be at a meeting and couldn't make it, unfortunately. But thanks to Scott for helping make this happen. OK, so I want to begin by returning to a moment from what seems like a very long two and a half years ago, the middle of 2016. A week after the British voted yes to leave the European Union, and a few months before the Americans voted yes to a Donald Trump presidency. It was in that early troubled summer that I noticed two thinkers who seemed like they could not be farther from one another, expressing a similar sentiment. A coincidence that made me feel like something larger was afoot, that there was a kind of tremor in the zeitgeist. The two thinkers were the British Marxist art historian T.J. Clark and the reality television star, real estate brand entrepreneur, and then presidential candidate, Donald Trump. In a foreign policy speech in April 2016, Trump denounced what he called, quote, the false song of globalism, bringing into circulation a term more often confined to academic writing about US foreign policy and libertarian conspiracy sites usually devoted to US foreign policy. Although globalism was a big term, of course, the primary face that Trump put to it was trade treaties including the proposed Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, the WTO, and especially NAFTA, which Trump has described repeatedly as, quote, the worst trade deal ever. Trump's position on the campaign trail amounted to a rejection of the idea that national sovereignty should be constrained in any way, and that unilateralism is the privileged, if not the only way, of exerting US influence in a world of America first. T.J. Clark, the art historian, for his part, was writing in the LRB, and he justified his own leave vote in the Brexit referendum by citing the European Union's indissoluble commitment to what he called the, quote, neoliberal rule of law in the EU's version of the TPP 
the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, or TTIP. Democratic candidate Bernie Sanders' own attack on TPP from the left that year led the eventual nominee, Hillary Clinton, to hedge her own support for it, and eventually coming out against it. A remarkable move for someone whose own husband spearheaded just such global trade arrangements in the 1990s. It came, to me anyway, as a slight surprise that the discontent with global economic governance was not being aimed at finance, which had actually brought the world system to its knees in 2008, but in the field of trade, where mainstream thinkers and observers had long described the international ongoing redivision of labor as something as irreversible and inevitable as melting glaciers. A healthy majority of Americans felt, and still do feel, that trade with other nations was a good thing, and is a good thing. And yet, if you look at the polls, they also present a paradox. A majority also believe that trade destroys jobs and decreases wages, and only something like half believe that it even decreases prices. So the attacks on the international trade law, then and since, have capitalized, I think, quite shrewdly on this gap and this kind of contradiction in people's opinions about trade. At the time and since, observers have described the victories of both Brexit and Trump as a kind of, quote, vote against globalization. I've argued myself that the right-wing backlash is less anti-globalization than an alternative globalization from the right, with very different ideas about mobility for people, capital, and goods. But what I want to focus on today is the way that events since 2016 have put something back on the table for discussion that had long hummed away in the background, namely the critical role played by law in processes of globalization. One of the arguments of my book, sitting there, Globalists, published earlier this year by Harvard University Press, is that we have to think about the ideology of neoliberal globalism being as much about law as it is about economics. To conflate neoliberalism and eco economism, as some have done, misses the fact that, as uh, your own Danny Roderick has argued recently, support for policies like free trade often come closer to articles of faith than arguments based on evidence. The WTO itself does not justify its existence on the basis of empirically proven arguments, but rather on first principles about openness, reciprocity, and its own version of fairness. What I hope to convince you of today is that by turning our attention to the rise of international economic law, we can see the project of neoliberal globalism differently and help bring the world economy, which is often cast as something close to a force of nature, back down to the earth and back into the space of history. We can also understand better what is at stake in the recent attack on the international trade architecture without recourse to the usual reflexive demonization of, quote, populism against the dubious superiority of the existing status quo. It helps, as it often does, to begin by thinking about the metaphors we use to describe reality. Mainstream accounts often define globalization since the 90s as market set free. If you Google image search globalization, for example, you'll likely see in terminal screen blue a globe crisscrossed by laser-like vectors beyond the strictures of territory and institutions. The new world is flat, as one recurring metaphor put it. Capital and goods, if not people, flow according to the logic of demand, ever more liberated from the fetters of regulation and restriction. Yet this was never true. The world economy was not set free, quote unquote, after 1989 in the sense of escaping into an ungoverned space. Rather, it was increasingly legalized and moved progressively from the oversight 
of governments to the oversight of law. Deregulation has always meant re-regulation and proliferating forms of multi-level governance alongside both hard and soft law. To name just one example, bilateral investment treaties, first signed between West Germany and Pakistan, as I described in the book, in 1959, have swollen from 500 in 1990 to over 3,000 at present. The WTO itself, as we will see, was a scaling up of the template of key parts of the European Union. The supposedly flat world of globalization is a thicket of trade law, arbitration courts, investor <coughs> protection agreements, and treaties. The text of the WTO alone is over 25,000 pages. So much for the end of red tape in an era of deregulation. Outside of the discipline of law, though, many scholars have overlooked this process of what has been called the juridicization of international trade relations. This is due in part, I think, to a misunderstanding of the ideology that is often said to underpin this most recent phase of globalization. That is the philosophy of neoliberalism. If neoliberals believe in anything, most would say, it is the liberation of markets. Yet this itself is also false. Neoliberals, by which I refer to a self-identified genealogy of thought and thinkers stretching from the 1938 Walter Lippmann colloquium to the present, do not believe, I would argue, in the liberation but in the encasement of markets. The encasement or protection is, is staged not only by the state, but crucially by a law understood at the global level. This is not only the public international law between states, but also the private international law that protects individuals and corporations and its synthesis in the so-called international economic law, or IEL, which has been ascendant since the 1980s, about which your own Dave Kennedy has written very perceptively. Neoliberals, especially those from what I call in the book the Geneva School as opposed to the Chicago School, share a foundational belief in the need for what they call the visible hand of the law, as the necessary supplement to the invisible hand of the market. The German jurist Carl Schmitt offered a helpful schematic geography of the neoliberal world economic imaginary in his 1950 book, The Nomos of the Earth. He described the division of the earth between the political world of states and the economic space of markets as the project of the liberal 19th century, separating imperium, or the rule of sovereignty, from dominium, or the rule of ownership. While Schmidt criticized this bifurcation, leading neoliberal thinker Wilhelm Wupke praised it. The belief in capitalism's double world of imperium and dominium has been a core belief of the neoliberal intellectual movement from the 30s onward and is also a structuring belief in the field of IEL. The key neoliberal figure from Greek myth, in other words, is not Prometheus, representing the freeing of innovation and entrepreneurial genius, but Ulysses tied to the mast the binding of sovereign states from interference in the legally regulated space of commercial transactions. The clear-sighted academic observers of the legal aspects of the neoliberal globalization moment have been in political science and critical legal studies, or legal studies. Stephen Gill's category of, quote, new constitutionalism offers a useful label for the diverse efforts to rewrite state and legal forms to lock in property rights and other policies favorable to transnationally mobile capital. Claire Cutler traces the emergence of a new Lex Mercatoria designed to protect the public-private distinction against efforts of democratic control and redistribution. David Schneiderman sees similar functions for the regime of investment protection, which he calls the institutional partner of neoliberalism. And Paul Tucker, who was here recently, talks about delegation 
to the, quote, unelected power of central banks and other independent agencies, a part of something similar that I'm describing. In the case of Europe, the work of Wolfgang Streich, Christian Jurgis, and Fritz Schopf have done much to equip a left critique like that of the art historian T.J. Clark in a way to see the EU as a, quote, Hayekian federation governed by, quote, Eurocrats designed to render impossible the furthering of a redistributive or social democratic vision for Europe. <coughs> in a criticism of the EU that could also be applied to critics of the WTO or NAFTA and other treaties, the vaunted integration through law in Europe is often seen as the construction of a, quote, iron cage designed to bend popular sovereignty away from any projects of social justice or redistribution. All of this is to say that Trump and Clark may be wrong in their particulars and their policies, but they are right to bring into relief the legal aspects of globalization that have often existed only in the background. They have helped to bring a critique of a particular version of the rule of law that has recently only circulated in the margins closer to what is now becoming more and more the mainstream of discussion. Taken together, the two examples attack two currently beleaguered but central institutions of the post-Cold War, the WTO created in 1995 and the EU formally created in 1992. Left to ask, though, of course, is the important question. Do these institutions, in fact, reflect the conscious application of what Clark calls the neoliberal rule of law? And what would such a rule of law actually mean? Making sense of this moment, I would argue, requires us to go beyond the arguments of the scholars that I've just named. In the style of political scientists and sociologists attempting intellectual history, for them, a certain idea is either plugged in as a variable without the need to explain the context of emergence, or simply granted as the necessary product of a particular historical conjuncture. This is true definitely for the ideas of Hayek and Buchanan in the case of Gill, and certainly true for Hayek in the case of Strake's work. They offer an intellectual history of inference or affinity rather than of evidence, deficient in a clear genealogy of what has been called the political power of economic ideas by Peter Hall, another professor here at Harvard. Yet there are traces, and they can often be traced. The rest of my talk today will be organized around just such a case in point. In June 1994, six months before 123 nations signed an agreement to create the WTO, which remains the crowning achievement of the discipline of international economic law, even if the crown is you know, tottering. The future director of, of the WTO, Peter Sutherland, delivered the third Hayek Memorial Lecture at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. The drafters of the GATT, and more recently of the WTO, Sutherland said, quote, drew on two of Hayek's key insights, the role of the price system in conveying information and the importance of the rule of law. On its face, this is quite a startling statement. Can it really be that the WTO was a direct application of Hayek's ideas, as Sutherland is suggesting? Wouldn't this be an extraordinary validation of the arguments made in the last years about the influence of what Dieter Pleba and Bernhard Walton originally called the neoliberal thought collective around the Montpellerin society? Or would that conclusion short-circuit a range of other possibilities and foreclose suppressed possible futures? What do we lose when we give away a category of potential politics, in this case, the category of the rule of law? To answer this, I will explore the rise of the rule of law talk in the GATT and the WTO since the 1970s, along the fault line of competing imaginaries of global north and global south. So this all gives you a kind of a flavor of how I approach the matter in the book, even if I am mostly focusing on the last two chapters of the book and what follows. 
law talk was slow to get started at the GATT, which was created in 1947. Although all of its directors were lawyers by training, the preferred mode in Geneva was economic diplomacy and ad hoc negotiation. GATT did not have an Office of Legal Affairs at all until 1983, at a time when the World Bank already employed 100 lawyers. When it was founded, the legal team of three included two former students of Hayek and graduates of Freiburg University, Ernst Ulrich Petersmann and Frieda Rösler. Petersmann, recognized now as one of the leading figures in IEL, or International Economic Law, said in retrospect that the GATT legal division, quote, seemed to offer a unique opportunity to promote the transformation of power-oriented trade policies into transnational rule of law. The epochal morphing of the GATT into the WTO just 12 years after the founding of the Legal Affairs Office testifies to the rapid and extraordinary success of this campaign, which they were part of even if they, even if they did not um, you know, initiate it themselves. So why did rule of law talk come to the GATT when it did? In 1978, the Swiss Director General of the GATT, Olivier Long, first invoked the term publicly in a speech at the London-based think tank, the Trade Policy Research Center, TPRC. He argued for, quote, the need for a reaffirmation of the rule of law in international trade. Long endorsed the proposal made in another speech at the TPRC by the American lawyer John H. Jackson the previous year, who had called for some way to prevent governments from, quote, disregarding or sidestepping the GATT's rules. Credited as the inventor of contemporary trade law and the single most figure, important figure in international economic law, Jackson saw two main sources of the erosion of the rules-based order in the 1970s. On the one hand, there were industrialized northern countries using a host of what were called neo-protectionist measures to fend off competition from rising economies like Japan. On the other hand, there was the vast group of newly decolonized and other global south countries that, he, as he said, quote, enjoy their current majority status in many organizations when voting proceeds on a one-nation, one-vote system, and had used this, he claimed, this position to secure derogations from a rule-based regime. So in other words, what might appear as a salutary scaling up of the democratic principle to the level of international governance was for Jackson an obstacle to order. Quote, there is virtually no chance of significant rule-making authority developing in any international body today, he said, which bases its procedures on the one-nation, one-vote system. Jackson's targeting of the developing nations, which accounted for a fraction of world trade at the time, might seem misplaced, yet it is entirely emblematic of the emergent field of IEL and GATT reform in the 1970s. In fact, one can say plainly that the world economic imaginary of the developing world, represented by the UN Commission on Trade and Development, or OTAD, and the G77, was the other against which the neoliberal field of IEL was defined. The reason for this was not simply a crude neo-colonialism or cultural suprematism, but a backlash against the concessions that the Global South had won in the 1960s, and its increasingly strident demands in the 1970s for a new international economic order, or NIEO. Through persuasive knowledge production, effective diplomacy, and collective mobilization, the Global South nations organized as the G77 had secured first the so-called Part 4, in 1966, and then the Generalized System of Preferences, GSP, that effectively freed them from GATT disciplines. This was the core of what became known as the Special and Differential Treatment for Developing Countries in the World Trade Regime, which accounted for the fact that, as one Indian representative to GATT put it, quote, equality of treatment is equitable only among equals. <coughs> These victories of the Global South countries were rather tepid ones. The exclusion of agriculture from GATT 
meant that the primary exports of many global South countries still faced US and European subsidies and protectionism. Yet what seemed to many like a reasonable concession to demands for mixed development and path-dependent lack of access to secure overseas markets struck the advocates of IEL and GATT reform as the indefensible core of the decay of the rules-based global economy. The TPRC, the Trade Policy <coughs> Research Center in particular, and its in-house journal, The World Economy, became a clearinghouse for scathing critiques of the NIEO in the 1970s and early 1980s. One of the sharpest critics of the time was one of today's most influential economics commentators, Martin Wolf of the Financial Times. After beginning his career at the World Bank in 1971, where he co-authored its first World Development Report with future Mopelaran Society President Deepak Law, Wolf was the Director of Studies at the TPRC in 1981 for six years before beginning his time at the FT. At the TPRC, Wolf helped articulate the IEL vision of the rule of law, aimed at what he criticized in 1984 as, quote, the desire of developing countries to create a world in which one group of countries has most of the obligations and another has most of the rights. By opting out of, of GATT disciplines, Wolf and others argued, developing countries were undermining the rule of law. As the TPRC report that Wolf helped write put it in 1984, quote unquote, developing countries have been engaged in a sustained assault on the liberal principles of the international trading system. Against special and differential treatment, the goal of IEL was to promote the idea of one rule for all in the world economy. What was necessary to achieve the rule of law for the world economy according to proponents of IEL? It had two features. First, to use Hayek's term, was isonomy, or same law. There had to be a consistency and a universality of rules by which investors could make reasonably informed decisions in the world economy. As Petersman put it in a quote he often repeated from Hayek, it is the essence of legal thinking that the lawyer strives to make the whole system consistent. In this line of argument, which was also influenced by Hayek's own idiosyncratic reading of cybernetics uh, and systems theory, deviations from formal equality at the margins of the world economy could have unintended and spreading effects throughout the entire system. Thus, the third world presented a threat to the system disproportionate to its own relatively small volume of trade. The departure from the rule could end up sparking a system failure throughout. The second feature of the rule of law was a means of judicial review and enforcement. The template that many international economic lawyers used here was the European community. This was superficially surprising, as some of the very same neoliberals around the TPRC had condemned the EC throughout the 1970s for its agricultural protection policy and its preferential trade agreements with former colonies, um, the sort of the ghost of your Africa, which I talk about in the, much of the chapter in the book. Yet, in the 1980s, neoliberals also discovered a part of Europe that they could love, rediscovering the fact that the European community's competition law, long dormant and under control of social democratic commissioners, could actually be an effective way of realizing the common market through attacking subsidies to state-owned corporations and forcing the liberalization of trade and eventually the liberalization of capital markets internally in the EU. Most important from a rule of law standpoint was that Europe had a legal authority. Wolf pointed out that both GATT and the EC were, quote, legal systems. The main difference, however, was that Europe had the European Court of Justice, which was an actual supranational judicial authority, and the GATT had only its consultations, which required consensus and were then not binding on those involved. They could simply be rejected by people who had been found to be infraction, uh, guilty of infractions. 
For Wolf, as with many other advocates of IEL, the ECJ, or the European Court of Justice, became the unique element in the European idea. What excited them about European law was that it was, quote, in the, jar in the legal jargon, directly effective in nation states. That meant that individual citizens and, quote, legal persons, a category which crucially included corporations, could appeal to European law within their domestic courts. For an influential cohort of the drafters of the WTO, in other words, the goal was to scale up this European idea from the continent to the world economy and make the WTO into a trade constitution, quote unquote, in which the dispute settlement body and the appellate body would act as equivalents of the European Court of Justice. The personnel pipeline from Brussels to Geneva was direct. The first person to distinguish himself through the aggressive use of European competition law in the 1980s was none other than Sutherland himself, who was competition commissioner from 1985 for four years before taking on the directorship of the GATT and later the WTO. Sutherland brought his legal activism to Geneva with him. The invocation of the rule of law in international economic relations, quote unquote, was his most consistent talking point as he traveled the world seeking to convince national governments to ratify the agreement for the WTO. In December 1994, Sutherland used the precise language that Olivier had long had used in 1978 when he said that the WTO's, WTO's achievement was, quote, reaffirming the rule of law in trade and economic relations. The bringing of new fields, including services and intellectual property, into the disciplines of the transformed GATT and new actors in the formerly privileged developing countries under the umbrella rule of the dispute settlement procedure meant that the demands of the rule of law, isonomy, judicial review, and enforcement had all, at seemingly at least on paper, been realized. So this model of, of, of enforcing beyond the border that we now see as the identifying feature of the WTO was for many of the people who were involved theorizing it based directly on the template of the European community, which is something which is not at least habitually referenced in the scholarly literature. So was the WTO indeed the realization of Hayek's vision of the rule of law, as Sutherland claims? It's helpful to look at Hayek's own work to test the claim. In his speech, Sutherland quoted Hayek from his book, The Constitution of Liberty, to the effect that, quote, how well the market functions depends on the character of its particular rules. On the following page of the book, Hayek makes a key point when he says that the application of principle to concrete cases is, quote, more the province of the lawyer than of the economist. In his 1960 book, in a book in other, 1960 book, in other words, written in Chicago immediately before his move to a position in Freiburg, Hayek had already signaled a turn in his own work to the privileging of legal rather than economic expertise as the key factor in the production of neoliberal order. The term that Hayek uses to determine whether a policy is permissible or not is none other than the rule of law. His normative vision of the rule of law contained the twin features we've already discussed of isonomy and judicial review, yet he remained dubious after the 1940s about scaling up the institutions of law and government to the global level. In taking the leap that they did, one could describe the proponents of international economic law as advocating a philosophy of ordo-globalism, taking the principles of ordo-liberalism promoted by someone like Hayek, who has effectively joins the Freiburg School around this time, and promulgating, indeed, a neoliberal rule of law, not only through the European institutions, but finally through the WTO. However, it's important to note that the idea of the rule of law in the world economy did not succeed through direct imposition on the global south, nor could it have. 
Raymond Connell and Neurodenos have made the convincing case that figuring out how the language and practice of neoliberalism gained global purchase requires attention to the conditions under which developing countries adopted its key terms for themselves. Indeed, the category of the rule of law resonated with many delegates from the developing world at the GATT because precisely it offered at least the potential of escape from the rule of unilateralism and the arbitrary measures of the richer countries. Speaking at the closing ceremony of the Marrakesh meeting where the WTO agreement was signed in 1994 before coming into uh, force the following year, King of Morocco, Hassan II, said that, quote, by bringing into being the WTO today, we are enshrining the rule of law in international economic and trade relations, thus setting universal rules and disciplines over the temptations of unilateralism and the law of the jungle, end quote. At an earlier GATT session, the Bangladeshi economics minister had argued that it was specifically, specifically, quote, the least developed countries, being the weakest and most vulnerable members of the international community, that need the rule of law most. Southern voices, in other words, helped buttress the idea of the rule of law for the world economy, convinced implicitly of John H. Jackson's influential dichotomy between a rule-based and a power-based world economic order. Columbia University economist Jagdish Bhagwati, a frequent contributor to the TPRC journal, added weight to this position in a 1990 book denouncing the U.S. use of so-called Section 301 administrative measures to abruptly change trade policy without GATT-style consultation. You've become familiar again with this recently. The title of the book became a catchphrase, Aggressive Unilateralism. In 1989, Bagwati wrote a statement opposing Section 301 signed by 40 eminent economists, including Paul Samuelson, Gottfried Haberler, who I read a lot about in the book, Ann Kruger, Robert Lucas, and along with one lawyer, John H. Jackson, saying that Section 301 was a way of, quote, satisfying the strong at the expense of the weak, which strikes a body blow to the GATT-type rule of law. Distinctive in the Southern invocation of the rule of law at the GATT, however, was its proposed coexistence with a continued special treatment for developing countries. Discussing the accession of Costa Rica in 1989, for example, a GATT working group said that it fully supported the rule of law and was, quote, firmly committed to the strengthening of both a multilateral trading system and the principle of special and differential treatment for developing countries. The Brazilian representative on trade negotiations advocated similarly for special and differential treatment while also arguing that in a world, quote, where unilateralism, bilateralism, and regionalism risk to discredit multilateralism in an irreversible way, all that is left for weaker economies is the rule of law. The Senegalese representative also argued that under conditions of structural adjustment, quote, the application of the rule of law in GATT helps to ensure the stability of tariffs, at least, and could allow a space to push back against the protectionism of the very countries, quote, which elsewhere preach the gospel of free trade. So while Southern delegates put forth their own version of the rule of law to bring accountability to the North, they failed to acknowledge the extent to which IEL, IEL's version of rule of law was defined precisely against the special and differential treatment that they hoped to preserve. Their both-end hopes for a rule of law, combined with particularist developmentalist claims, clashed with the either-or IEL version of isonomy and universalism. One could see the attractions of the rule of law language for Southern delegates as an overlooked part of the bait and switch by which the apparent grand bargain of the WTO ended up favoring disproportionately the global north against the south, at least in the short term. What they saw as a possible extension of the third world project through the WTO was actually designed to end it. The essence of the neoliberal rule of law then can be understood best by looking at its inverse. 
It is commonplace to suggest that the opposite of the rule of law is the law of the jungle, as the Moroccan delegate suggested in 1994. While itself obviously a racialized term calling for a critical conceptual history as opposed to embracing and using it as Robert Kagan does in the title of his new book, what is meant by the rule of jungle of the jungle is often more or less clear. It is the world envisioned by Trump, unilateralism force and the rejection of international cooperation. Yet, yet, that is not the inverse of the rule of law for Hayek. The opposite of the rule of law for Hayek is a set of rules that breaks with formal equality in deference to historically determined inequalities of starting positions for individuals and populations in the world economy. A system that breaks with autonomy is one that refuses to deny difference. The preferences granted to developing countries constitute just such a system. A system contrary to the rule of law is one that seeks substantive rather than purely formal equality. Something different than the rule of the jungle, I would say. As Hayek wrote in the Constitution of Liberty, quote, within the limits set by the rule of law, a great deal can be done to make the market work more efficiently and smoothly, but within these limits, what people now call distributive justice can never be achieved. The inverse of the Hayekian rule of law, then, is not unilateralism, but what he called the mirage or the atavism of social justice. If Sutherland and other proponents of ordo-globalism subscribe to the Hayekian strain of the rule of law, as they explicitly claim to, then it is important to see that social justice is not simply an unlikely outcome or a secondary goal, but is literally the constitutive outside against which the world economic imaginary has been defined. The formal equality of ordo-globalism requires, by its own logic, the rejection of claims based on redistributive or social justice. Whether this hijacking of the language of the rule of law is permanent or sustainable remains to be seen. The legitimacy crises that have plagued the WTO since its creation, creation suggest that ordo-globalism may have overreached. What we are witnessing now is a full-blown assault on the institutions of the 1990s. The WTO itself is being <coughs> diagnosed as lying on its deathbed as the US continues to block appointments to its all-important appellate body, the very mechanism of enforcement that um, Sutherland celebrated. Under the leadership of the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, the Trump trade team has gone back to the very tools of aggressive unilateralism condemned by Bhagwati decades ago, including executive orders and appeals to national security clauses and trade law to force concessions from trading partners. The updated NAFTA, renamed USMCA, has been described snarkily by some observers as NAFTA 0.9 for the slightness of its change, Yet it is remarkable that the one major change was the removal of ISDS, or Investor State Dispute Settlement Mechanisms, which had been precisely one of the crown jewels of international economic law and long a bugbear of the critical left, uh, some people in attendance included. The explicit goal of the neoliberal rule of law was to depoliticize economic relations. The term is used all the time. It's a good thing, depoliticization and insulate them from democratic interference, thus keeping the worlds of dominium and imperium separate. It goes without saying, obviously, that this itself was always a political process, generating clear winners and clear losers. But what we are witnessing now in the attack on the trade architecture from the right is the dropping of the hypocritical claim of depoliticization and an opening of long-suppressed conversations about the fact that trade policy has distributional effects both between and within nations. The old pieties about free trade no longer seem to suffice. The momentum of this critique for the moment is clearly being driven from the right. It is being paired with a repellent and xenophobic opposition to immigration. But what we can only hope is that the opening that is taking place now can be 
capitalized on to restage discussions of options for the left too, including being on the lookout in both the present and the past for alternative visions of the rule of law, for the world economy that might break the deadlock that puts a Marxist art historian in bed with a megalomaniacal millionaire Montebank. What inspirations, I guess we should ask, might allow us to whisper the neoliberal rule of law for the world economy is dead, long live the rule of law for the world economy. Thanks. I'm happy to take questions or comments. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of wanted to touch upon the, the last point that you made. Um, could it be argued that since Trump is pursuing uh, tariff increases through WTO, like through the national security exception, mm -hmm. um, and actually was able to negotiate the USMCA and is continuing to negotiate like a new, a new version of TTIP and like another agreement with Japan and South Korea, mm -hmm. that he's actually not he's not undermining the rule of law uh, as he defined. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is an important thing to know, which is that that the use of these kind of unilateral measures has often been in the service of getting to a better multilateral, a renegotiation of a, of a multilateral or bilateral arrangement, right? So um, I think that the, the initial impression about Trump's trade policy, which was just sort of like inchoate, flailing, um, you know, executive orders with no rhyme or reason to them, I think I actually felt right away was wrong because I paid attention to Lighthizer um, and his own intellectual genealogy over the years, and I'd seen that his example was precisely the U.S. relationship to Japan in the 1980s, the very moment that Bhagwati was talking about aggressive or coining the term aggressive unilateralism, when they used things like demands for voluntary export restrictions and so on to get to, to help get Japan to restrain itself in certain ways that helped U.S. competitiveness, and also to then to help get Japan to the negotiating table for the WTO for a grand multilateral. Agreement. So I think that it's clearly not helpful to kind of create a dichotomy between sort of a multilateral past and then the current sort of unilateral present. Clearly there is a way in which the aggressive moves of the Trump trade team now are being used to, I think, get to a renegotiation of a, of a multilateral version of uh, trade law that works better for them. And in that sense, yeah, I mean, maybe once they get to that point, then there will be a return to this claim of kind of the universal nature of the rule of law, once it, once again, is a rule of law defined in terms that works best for American interests. I mean, I think that's, that's I think, one of the things to bear in mind, is that, you know, we have had international order since 1945, and the liberal international order, always to the extent that that international order worked primarily in the interest of the United States own. Interest. And so it's only at those, at those moments when the United States is happy to speak in universalist categories. And right now we're in a situation where the existing institution, specifically the WTO, has ceased to work specifically for American interests. And so now there is an attack against it. But should a resettlement come about, I think then universalist language might come again. So that sounds a little bit too functionalist, and I would want it to sound, because I think that my attention to the way that Global South delegates at the GATT WTO were using the rule of laws is intended to show that this doesn't mean that there's only a one-way relationship even in universalist rule of law institutions, that there's always the capacity to at least push back and make demands that can you know, 
change the way, the way in which the, the processes work and even at the global level. So, so I think you're right. I agree with you. Um, and I think this is something that is, we'll have to watch as it unfolds. Yeah. So uh, this is very interesting, and thank you for uh, coming, and I look forward to reading the book. Um, uh, the, uh, one of the rules of thumb that I carry around uh, for institutional design mm -hmm. is that every decade or so, you should take an institution and blow it up. Okay. Uh, because it becomes ossified mm -hmm. and, and self-referential, and, you know, and it loses connection to the larger problems mm -hmm. and so I don't know everything about the WTO, but I've had some interaction involved in WTO cases, mm -hmm. and they were bizarre, mm -hmm. um, where the words don't mean what the dictionary says, they mean right. what the precedent said in the law before, <clears throat> where the arguments were constrained because you couldn't say things that made sense from my perspective on the basic economics because you would be infringing on conventions that have been accepted in the WTO that we weren't supposed to talk about. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and if you talked about them, you would lose the case, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. so, so when the president wants to blow up the WTO, that resonates to me as, well, it's about time. Um, uh, could you comment on that? Sure. I mean, I think that a lot of the, the, the problems that the United States is having with the WTO right now often gets understood correctly through this, this notion of kind of the two cultures, of a kind of a culture that the United States brought to the WTO and a culture that Europeans brought to the WTO. And it actually ties directly to the argument here, which is to say the Europeans had a much more um, ambitious goal for what the WTO, WTO could be, that it could act as this kind of evolving mechanism of governance, whereas the American position was that it would be a, simply a, a, a body for contract enforcement. right? And so whatever it says in the WTO agreement, you know, let's follow the letter of what it says there, whereas the European argument, I think, consistent with this idea of scaling up the European project in a way, was how can the WTO itself continue to evolve in ways that take account with, you know, changing priorities, et cetera. So, um, they, the whole thing kind of gets trapped in what, in, in actually what Hayek's own distinction, which is this distinction between law and legislation, right? Hayek and I think some of the people who were pushing the WTO had this idea that the WTO would be able to act simply as the sort of guardians of the economic constitution and never create law, only kind of enforce it. And the fact is that that's a very hard distinction to uphold. And, and even these supposedly impartial guardians of the economic constitution sitting in the appellate body have instead started in some ways to legislate, right? They've started to create law instead of just discover and enforce it. And because that's moving in a way that is, again, contrary to American interests, it's been, uh, you know, it has stuck in the craw of people like Lighthizer and other critics of the WTO for some time, right? And this critique of the WTO did not begin with Trump, right? I mean, there was already the blocking of the reappointment of a, a member of the appellate body under the Obama administration, specifically because the impression was that she was not, she was herself American, uh, Jennifer Donovan that she herself was not um, representing American interests best in the appellate body. So there's always this contradiction. On the one hand, sort of the ideology of the impartial, objective guardian, but then, in fact, the people who are in the powerful economies who are involved do want the people, even in that objective body, to act in ways that are best for their economies. So I think at, the, at this point, the direction of things has gone in such a way that the US just 
doesn't see that mixture of things working in its own interest. So um, blowing it up would probably, I mean, this is what's happening. I mean, blowing it up would work in the best interest of the United States. And I think that's what they're doing. So do you think that ultimately our intellectual history has a sufficient vocabulary to recast rule of law from this formalistic understanding of equality to one more focused on distributive issues and equity? Well, that's a good question. I mean, ultimately, no. I mean, I don't think that that, that latter definition of rule of law will come through a kind of a different genealogy through the works of legal thinkers back into the 19th century. So it has to be completely created and created at this point. Well, no, I mean, I think, but I think this is where you can, where the, the tools of intellectual history and political history, or the history of political economy, can work well together. Because we can say, if we look at these situations, these encounters in the space of something like the GATT or the WTO negotiations, when you see the, the differing definitions of rule of law that are being brought to the table by, let's say, a Senegalese deputy or a Ghanaian, then we can see that this this category is being filled with different content, right? So intellectually, as an intellectual historian, you need to know where the categories came from. But as a political historian, you can see that those categories are, are under pressure and contestation from different angles and that the meaning of political words and concepts are not um, stable over time, right? So I think that, you, that this is a way of paying close attention to political language in a way that can show that a concept that we thought we knew the content of has now actually, in a particular constellation, come to mean something else. And we could then, if we, if we do have a kind of normative idea, a new idea of the law, sort of attach ourselves to this redefinition that's happening and push that as a kind of a new genealogy for the transformation of the concept. Two questions. One is on uh, the creation of the sort of this, this moment, creation of the WTO yeah. around uh, a lot of your story uh, revolves. Um, you, you, pay, you put a lot of uh, emphasis on uh, on uh, the ideology of the Geneva, what you call the Geneva School, mm -hmm. and sort of this, this neoliberal legalism. And, yeah. uh, and I'm wondering if you, if, if one were to tell the story in their own completely in their absence. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's a story not based on ideational factors at all, but simply you know, crude uh, you know, perception of power, mm -hmm. of uh, the leading negotiating actors here, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not the you know, GATT bureaucracy uh, or sort of the circle of intellectuals mm -hmm. around them, the TPRC, mm -hmm. um, but you know, sort of the, um, you know, the, the manner in which, uh, by that time, uh, international investors and, and multinational corporations and their, their, their interests had, uh, had captured um, what uh, you know, US negotiators thought they were doing and so forth. So a purely interest-based account. Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder how much we would miss uh, in terms of what actually happened uh, and, and, and the form and shape that the WTO uh, eventually took, uh, as opposed to um, the role that, that the insiders um, uh, played. I mean, it, it seems to me that, I mean, that there's a reason that the, the, um, the WTO looks the way that it does, or at least the agreements look the way that it does. I mean, it's, uh, you know, 
there's a reason that the, you know, there's one of the major achievements was the intellectual property rights regime, uh, which, by the way, um, you know, the, uh, none of the Geneva School people would have wanted it there in the first place, and yet you know, that is the, because that's pushed by, by, by pharma. Right. Um, and uh, there's a reason why there's no investment chapter, um, even though I think, uh, I, I would guess that most of the Geneva um, circle would have liked an investment chapter as an extension of the rule of law to um, purely the trade to the investment part, but there is no investment chapter because the developing countries you know, very strongly object. Or not bad. Um, and, uh, and there's a reason why agriculture had to be brought in because that was the way to actually get developing countries on board on the same right. mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, it, it seems to me that, that, that you know, so the question for me is how much do I need to know about the um, Hayek and, 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 the, and the Geneva School to, to really understand um, how the WTO works? Mm -hmm. uh, let me just ask this a second. Yes, please. Yeah. Ask a second. Um, yeah, no, I think of course that's an important question. In fact, of course, the history that we have is precisely the one that you described, right? the history that we already have is about the WTO as the outcome of a special interest pushing their items onto the agenda, the wonderful work of Susan Sell on intellectual property, just for May. Um, and all of that I find to be completely persuasive in the idea of a grand bargain, how developing countries could be persuaded by you know, trading IP for agriculture and things like that. Um, but my question is, and actually I didn't ask it this precise way, but I could ask it, it's a research question is would the WTO in its, in, in its form, the form that it took, have ever come to exist if it wasn't for particular legal thinkers within the rounds of, within the Uruguay round of negotiation, pushing for this real radical transformation of the GATT from an ad hoc consultation-based body to a formal legal-based body with means of enforcement. It's not clear that, you know, it is clear that once that was going to happen, that Numerous private interests figured out how they could have their interests best represented within that framework. But that moment of transformation from consultation-based to rules-based, from what I can see, was pushed by a relatively small number of people, the legal experts who were involved in the Uruguay Run, which is not an endless number of people, who pushed the conversation towards the rule of law that Olivier Long from the late 70s, as the director general, is talking about the need Jackson. So these are figures who I think did not necessarily, they did not determine the content of what became the WTO, but they very well might have determined the form of the WTO. And I don't think that any of the existing histories we have right now um, sufficiently discount that idea. And if, and if that is true, then one certainly would need to know about this stuff to explain why the WTO came to exist at all. And, and when you mean the, the, the form as opposed to the content, mm -hmm. what do you mean? I mean, I, I, I can see the big difference is the change in the dispute settlement. Right. Um, so so do, is that what, what you mean? Well, that is that is the enormous change, right? I mean, it, the fact that you could just opt out of a gap of a gap discipline if you didn't like it from you can't do that, and now there are defined sanctions and, and there are two rounds of boards to, to make sure that that's the case. That is from uh, uh, a trade architecture without enforcement to one with enforcement, which I think is the essential, existential kind of difference between one and the other. 
right? And it, it is the one that has gotten it into trouble now because people have the sense that they are being compelled by the supranational body to, that's infringing on their sovereignty. So that, I mean, that would be the way I'd answer the question. I don't have exactly the, the sort of internal negotiation story from the Uruguay round where which is where one would have to go to figure this out. I would push back on the IP part because Eric Slorish Petersmann, right, who is the key figure in the GATT legal team in the transformation of the WTO, actually loved TRIPS. He thought it was the model of the way that um, an individual <coughs> right could be defended within domestic courts. An individual property right could be defended within domestic courts by a supranational body. So the fact that, that TRIPS was directly effective in ways actually that other, that other um, property rights weren't was for him the model. Um, of course, other, other members of what I've called the Geneva School, uh, Hayek and Mockler, were much more critical of copyrights and patents and some of the more outright opposed to them. But Petersmann saw the, the way that TRIPS worked is actually pushing the farthest um, with this model of kind of multilateral level of enforcement of economic rights as he saw them. Did you have a second question? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll, I'll ask. Go for it. So there's there's two two versions of um, what I mean in, in contemporary discussions. Two versions of what the WTO does, and, and mm -hmm. the one that that you laid out, and, and the one that I'm more sympathetic to, is, is is that you know the, the WTO is a, is a way of disciplining uh, what um, uh, you know, contemporary policymakers are allowed to do in the name of, of, of some sort of vision of how what the world economy and openness and all of that should look like. And, in, 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 and, and that vision essentially is, is predicated on the idea that internal arrangements of different nations have to start to be more similar to each other, mm -hmm. uh, just as in all these new areas that the WTO brought in, um, uh, because otherwise they're, they're, they look like they're trade barriers. And, mm -hmm. and, so, and, and of course, you know, the, the most you know, contemporary illustration of that is the U.S. versus China, and they claim that China is cheating because it's doing what it's always done. Mm -hmm. That's their, that's how they manage their economy. But so you can't have U.S. and China in the WTO because they represent sort of different models. And and in that vision, the WTO can, can only last if there is some significant convergence in these other policies. Yeah. Um, and WTO fails if it doesn't effectively discipline China. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the other one is, is uh, a lot of um, uh, legal scholars would say that in fact from, from day one, uh, WTO was never about uh, reshaping uh, domestic political economies, mm -hmm. uh, but it was always about getting you know, sort of rules for the interface. Uh, there were the rules about uh, how different national economic arrangements interact with each other without any presumption uh, that, you know, that there will be a common set of rules. Mm -hmm. So for example, in, in, in the agreement on sanitary and phytosanitary standards, the notion that uh, you know, not everybody all have to have, everybody doesn't have to have the same standards, but there has to be some rules about transparency and, and the use of science-based evidence and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that would be kind of an example where we're not trying to make different countries homogenize and, and fit the same rules. We're, we're expecting at least that they, 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 they have a way of justifying what they're doing to others, mm -hmm. which, is not an, which is not a harmful uh, thing to do. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so when I, when I present, so 
you know, the, the, the version of, of your take, you know, the usual, you know, sort of the, the, the pushback is to say, no, no, that's, that in fact, you know, scholars like John Jackson, in fact, Jack Jackson has a, had a lot uh, when he was discussing with WTO talking about um, how it's really the interface that is being created and not this notion of, of uh, homogenization. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, the, the, the economists around that, you know, people like Jagdish Bhagwati and so forth, would also be very much against this notion of homogenization. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I'm, I'm turning it over to you. I mean, how, yeah. what, what is your counter pushback? I mean, what I can say from the point of view of the people that I write about, and some of whom were directly involved with creating this, is that there's a, actually a third way of thinking about what the WTO does. And actually, I think this is what IEL people, I know some of whom have been critics of you, like Joel Trackman, argue, is that, that the agreements like the WTO don't decrease national sovereignty, they actually increase it. And they increase it because, specifically, national governments can then appeal to those rules against internal special interest claims within their own population. Um, because this is, the, and this is the way that someone like Jan Tumlier, who was called the resident philosopher of the GATT, lovely title, described what he was doing as he said, you know, international rules protect markets, uh, protect states against their own populations. So the argument, and I didn't even get into this here, is that democracy has a disruptive effect. And the, the way in which special interests and pleading and demands for redistribution, which they think is kind of endemic to democracy itself, tends to accelerate over time, means that the state needs stronger tools to be able to resist such demands internally. And that to be able to say, no, we are bound to not allow those kind of interests. Sorry, we can't have this kind of um, special claim being made internally, whether it's based on labor, environmental, more state ownership standards or whatever, is actually a way that um, indeed the, I mean, the, that the state is empowered vis-a-vis -vis its own population and it can then sort of engage in a kind of a coalition with other states in the interests of stability and order against inflationary demands and expectations disruptions from, from within. Um, so that doesn't necessarily require a convergence of the variety of capitalism, if you'd like, being practiced within this nation and that nation. It just requires a kind of a baseline of the capacity to uh, repress and deny strong demands for redistribution being made from within. And within that, you can have, I mean, if you look at the world today, there's a lot of different ways of denying demands for redistribution. America has its way of doing it, China has its way of doing it, but they do actually agree on on, on that baseline principle. And I think that that, at least from the point of view, that's, it's, it's an interesting way to look at what the WTO is designed to do, which is to say, as Tumlier would say and others of the Geneva School that I described, saying, you know, all problems of international order are premised in domestic distribution struggles. And what we need is, a, is an architecture that contains somehow domestic distribution struggles. And the argument is that an appeal to law is something that is binding is actually a very convenient way of states to simply say, sorry, our hands are tied, we can't do it, we need to defer to the needs of a broader global economy. And so that by this way of thinking about it, global governance is actually primarily a tool of domestic governance. Um, and I think that that's not a bad argument to sort of add to the third one that you, that you name. I think in practice, the way that this has worked in terms of its um, historical rollout has been more like 
you know, the first argument, and Lighthizer is a wonderful example here, right? Um, he said, you know, we had this delusion when we brought China into the WTO that it would become more like us over time, westernized by the influence of capitalism, a la Americana. Um, but actually, there's something cultural going on there, and they're resistant, and they'll never be like us, and they do state capitalism, they can't help it, and so we can't be in the same agreement together, and in fact, maybe we need to be a bit more state capitalist ourselves. That would, I think, be the conclusion. So that's a way of saying, let's, I think that could be a way of saying, let's redo a kind of a world trade architecture, either to develop some more effective means of enforcement to prevent China from acting that way, or to allow for precisely the kind of ways that we've decided might be acceptable in this, in this new world. That's my own way of answering that. Yes, sir. So the brief comment and then yes. a question. Just the, the comment was that when you talk globalism, it becomes this sort of language game. People don't really know where internationalism ends and globalism begins uh -huh. and the difference between the two. Yeah. Or when we talk rule of law, like mm -hmm. what is it tethered to? The public good? <laughs> you know, these, these concepts, is it yep. um, supporting the public good and trying to codify <laughs> it? Or is it trying to like smother it and hold it down? And then, I mean, I'm always, when I investigate it, mm -hmm. obsessed with finding these things out and then finding it very difficult to talk to other people who, um, I want to talk about globalism and they can only, they think it's internationalism. Or you watch the president mm -hmm. use globalist rhetoric mm -hmm. to bash internationalism. Yeah, so I mean, I have two responses to that. One, I think the interesting thing about the rule of law as a category, and this is also the way it gets used in the, in the World Bank, you think about rule of law agencies and so on, is it isn't actually a category that's premised on the idea of sort of greatest possible welfare or public good in any kind. I mean, that was an ambition for internationalism back in the day when Wendell Wilkie was traveling. Oh, yeah, no, but I'm talking about like the way that we see it its appearance in the 1980s and 1990s. Yeah. It's a way of talking about a kind of a policy goal or telos that is not based on really aggregate prosperity or aggregate welfare or public good in the way that you're describing it. It's really, I think, it's based on a, a demand and a desire for stability and order. But we would arrive at it through, you know, the complexity of hashing it out. Um, yeah, I mean, Maybe. I think that the argument is that we need institutions that prioritize that rather than, it's kind of an anti-growth argument in a way, right? Because once we, we discarded the kind of the dreams of developmentalism and modernization theory, and the most of the world is not going to become as wealthy as, as the United States, then, ever, then the rule of law becomes a kind of a more minimalist demand for the governing of global economic relations. And in that sense, uh, your second point about globalism versus internationalism is apropos because the diff I mean, internationalism implies obviously relationship between nations, and the neoliberal imaginary that I describe in the book is one that understands public international law or relationship between nations is only half of the story, and maybe not even the most important story. The other half of the story is the way commercial and capitalist relations cross borders, within, yeah. within borders, and so yes. it's not, to say internation actually doesn't quite capture it because it is a way of seeing the world economy as one seamless space over which nations in the political sense are kind of overlaid. So the, the, the tension I'm describing and the problem of global economic governance is sort of getting that settlement 
between a world of the fragmented mosaic of political sovereignties and then idea, ideally a single seamless space of, of capital movements within it. Right? That's it's not an easy thing to do. Um, but it, that, that's the imaginary, which is globalist rather than internationalist because it sees the world in some ways as a single connected space. So the, well, the question just briefly was, yeah. um, so I recently read John Rouston okay. Saul's take yeah. on the collapse of globalism. Yep. At the end, he kind of looks at there is a nationalism that comes after globalism after it collapses. Okay. And that it can be the negative form that we know that is absolutely negative, or yeah. that we can reimagine a positive form post-Westphalian that is sort of centered around inclusion okay. and the idea that borders are for taxes and capital, not people. And yeah. how do you feel about it? Well, I mean, I think this has been the standard way that, that we've been talking about it since 2016, right? Which is like, globalization is over, globalism is dead. Like, now we're, you know, because we're all forced to deal with the nation, it's only an option between kind of right-wing and left-wing populist nationalism. But see, right? there's like, the vacuum seems to be like on the left. The right is kind of filling it with a negative form. Right, and right. But, but I'm saying, you know, my argument would be that, that this is a false argument we're being forced into. First of all, the right is not discarding globalization, yeah. um, obviously. So why do we? Why would we take that as the premise for the new politics? Now that we've all opted out of globalism, no, no, they haven't. Like trade, global trade is growing from year to year since 2016. Global finance volume. See that? I mean, that would be internationalism is growing, but the globalist system would be uh, tax flight, aggressive, destructive capital movements, which are also growing. And if that is, you know, trade. Real trade may need to go up. Yeah, I mean, I listen. I agree with you that, or I sort of don't agree with you because I think that what the left needs is a good way to reimagine what big kind of globalism they want. I don't think the response is to say like, let's retreat to the nation and figure it out from here. No, no. I mean, I mean that's it's an it's an internal retreat to the nation, but you would use the nation Mm -hmm. to fight a lot of tax flight. And that you would use it to kind of defeat, you know, multinational corporatism that's so large that it can sort of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is like the Lexit position, and it so far has been pretty ineffective, I would say. Um, I, you know, I don't think that the departure of Britain from the European Union, because that would be a concrete way of doing what you're describing, is going to lead to those kind of outcomes, and it's, you know. I, I, I believe that you know it's better to work with it. I understand you much better if I can get. <laughs> integration rather than to try to opt out of them in a certain way. You're a techie. So that's my, that's my take, but I, we should probably... Yeah? Last question. Uh, yeah, so following up on that and kind of combining it with the earlier question about yeah. blowing this up. Yeah. Um, what does this look like going forward if you were to really rewrite the rules? And I guess I'm, I'm curious, based on the experience of writing TTP, in which multinational corporations played a huge role, like prepared a lot of the tax. Yeah. If you are sort of starting over, how much of the, the sort of, um, how much of the, the, the idea behind whatever comes next comes from sort of corporate sources versus legal scholars or, or politicians? I mean, how, how do you view that sort of um, uh, landscape going forward in terms of who, who would have the most influence over what rules get written. Yeah, I mean, I think that the clarifying thing about this repoliticization of international economic relations that we've been undergoing under Trump 
is that it's now become clear that whatever existed before was also a form of regulation, right? So the, the, the era from the 90s to 2016 was not the era of disembedded markets, the unfettered capitalism. It was a very specific <coughs> regulatory architecture that was built to help some groups and not help others. And so now that we can talk about that, that's actually good, because we can say, well, what's our alternative for regulation, right? And what's being missed in the attack right now on the global economic architecture? Everything is about trade, which is convenient, because it's actually finance that we should be talking about. So I think the most obvious beginning point for a kind of a left or a non-right position would be to say, let's talk about global regulation of finance, actually, again, because we were only a few years ago, financial transaction taxes. Um, registries of, of global finances. Um, there are simple things that have come out of the kind of the era of Blockupy in the wake of Piketty that have all now been eclipsed by the 2016 uh, wave and have led to, I think, this false impression of like, well, now that the global is dead, like, what can we do with the nation? But like, no, 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 no. Like, we still need to pay attention to the global. And where those forces are going to come from, whether they'll be, you know, you know, righteous forces within the corporate world that you can kind of mobilize and tap into. I don't know. I mean, the European regulatory apparatus is, is a big failure a lot of the time, but it also is more attentive to the very problems of kind of capital, um, you know, abuse and tax evasion and diversion and things like that, that that we should absolutely keep on the schedule of, of important issues. So I think, you know, tax, Tax and finance are the, the kind of dull, dry things that are the facts of globalization that still need to be like the stuff of demands for regulation. So we need to end it here. Uh, we're going to stay tuned, and we're going to do the drawing in just a minute. But before we do that, please join me in thanking Principal. <laughs>